Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod. Today we're going to do something a touch different. Very, very occasionally, a piece of work passes across my desk that massively impresses me. Normally that's because it's a piece of scholarship that's opened my eyes or it's particularly uh, well done. Very, very rarely a novel passes across my desk that makes me sit back and go, wow. And that is the focus of what we're going to be looking at today. In fairness, when this, um, it was a very, very early version of, of what's become a very hotly anticipated book. When the uh, the text dropped on my desk, I probably should have anticipated that it would be as good as it was, because it's fair to say that the author of it knows their way around a typewriter. They have a number of Sunday Times bestsellers, They've published in more than 10 companies, including the UK, US, Italy, Spain, Greece, Russia, and the Netherlands. They are the author of very much enjoyed series, including the Lionheart series, the Clash of Empires series, the Eagles of Rome series. If you haven't worked it out yet, folks, I am joined by Ben Kane. He's written a book called Napoleon's Spy, which looks at the Moscow campaign, um, which I thought was a pretty ballsy move, I have to say, um, considering, as we'll get into in due course, that it does sort of lend itself towards misery almost from the first day. Ben, it's great to see you. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm I'm fine, thanks, Zach. I'm a little bit kind of uh, uh, awestruck there by your description. Thank you very much. It's it's great to be on your on your show. I'm really looking forward to this uh, and this chat. It's been it's been a while coming, but it should be fun. So thanks. No, not at all. I mean, we we touched base at what was it Chalk Valley last year? Um, That's right. Yeah. And then we we sort of been talking on and off um, ever since. But I tell you what, I particularly like about this. And folks, you know me by now. You know that I don't praise 
when it's not give praise when it's not due this was one of those books that was not only really honest to the history which is obviously going to appeal to a historian who's always kind of worrying about false perceptions and all the rest of it and myth busting but it managed to do that kind of retain that kind of historical honesty whilst also just being a ridiculously good read you know really emotional as well um there are moments in this where i was sitting back going this is really sad or you know kind of really being sucked into the drama um so it's compelling it's emotional it's brilliantly written um yeah people are going to want to buy this um for for the context though for our, our listeners who perhaps it particularly if they're sort of napoleonic um in kind of what they they read um perhaps they haven't read your novels um i want to start with you on this one why because all of your novels are historical novels right why was it that medium that you decided to work in as opposed to i don't know crime or fantasy and you know why why take on this rather than being the next lee child for example it's quite simply history has always been one of my favorite things ever since i was a, a small boy um it's what neither of my parents are particularly interested in history but I, I was it's one of those you know sometimes you do things that your parents do you learn from them and sometimes you just have these interests i've no idea where it came from i remember reading asterix when i was small you know that was that was my first contact with ancient rome and i moved on into i was a huge book reader as a boy uh, a lot of historical fiction like rosemary Sutcliffe's eagle of the ninth and i mean i was reading sharp novels by the time i was 14 um, and I read them, I, you know, I kept up to date with them for many years. I, di I didn't continue that because um, like in my 20s, like a lot of people, I, I, I fell away from reading. But when I, um, I actually trained as a veterinary surgeon. And so I did that for 16 years. And when I was wanting to change careers, it would seem natural to me to want to write a novel and uh, writing one set in the past. There was no question that it was going to be historical. I you know i literally wouldn't have thought of anything else um and this is my 18th novel so it was only a matter of time before i i started moving time periods a few years ago and this really screamed at me to be a novel uh when i was um do you want me to do you want to ask another question or will i keep talking <laughs> you carry on people are here okay. to listen to you not me okay thanks um so i i in an another one of my sort of fingers in the pie is I actually work as a bike guide uh, on these sort of epic length one month five week cycling trips in Europe where the, the Hannibal is the first one I did that was cycling from Barcelona to Rome over the Alps a la Hannibal uh, and I get I give the historical talks and four years ago I was asked to do the first week of the Napoleon which was pre-Ukraine war obviously was um, London to Moscow, although actually St. Petersburg, because the roads near Moscow are so dangerous, but that's that was technically supposed to be to Moscow. And so I read Zamoyski's 1812, this incredible Adam Zamoyski's book. Uh, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, but a British historian who is, I mean, it reads like a thriller. And what was funny was that one of my good friends had actually given me the book about 10 years before when it came out. And I had very young children at the time. And I looked and went, oh, this looks great. He, he says it's great. And I had no time to read it. So, But I didn't give it to the charity shop. It sat there on my bookshelf screaming to be read. And I finally picked it up and read it before doing this week of guiding. And I just, I just went, I'm writing a novel about this. This is unbelievable. It is. And then, of course, 
you know, I began realized that there were more than 150 first-hand accounts, and um, you've got the the Charles Britton Austin 1,200-page day-by-day book uh, that I got as well. And um, I mean, I'm I, I joke uh, in the author's note, but it is true that this is basically a work of non-fiction with a few fictional characters put into it. It it it, it almost wrote itself. It was uh, it was it was I, I can't say a joy to write because it was so horrific. But it was an amazing book to write. Um, I was really, really glad to have done it. Yeah, I must say the the horror element, not in a sort of gratuitous horror kind of way, but that kind of, God, this was awful um, kind of mood really does come through. And I don't know, we kind of had the conversations about, you know, that's kind of one of the challenges of, yeah. of writing this is that as a reader, you sort of don't want to be depressed by the whole thing all yeah. of the time. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the tale itself. As I say, I read an early manuscript, so I don't know how things have changed over time. You hadn't even written the final chapter, so I still don't know what happens at the <laughs> yeah, end. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to have to go and get the book and, and no, find no, out for myself. I will send you a copy <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but for for our listeners, you've got a Brit serving Napoleon but also acting as a spy. There's a gambling addiction thrown into it, a love affair with an actress, a rivalry worthy of, frankly, the duelists. And if that wasn't dramatic enough, as we've said, it's set during the 1812 Russia campaign. Um, so how do you kind of go about balancing all of those different things? Because as I say, you know, you've got to make this a, a form of entertainment Mm. um the the history is compelling by itself but that's not why people are picking up your books so how do you go about kind of crafting your characters and and kind of weaving in your plot line into a narrative as big as the moscow campaign well i think the way i could describe it is with a micro focus and a macro focus and and moving between the two that that's the way i i try and um portray all the books you know the history is hopefully speaks for itself and is very dramatic, uh, whether whether it's Napoleonic or a different time period. But you've, the story, as you mentioned, right, that's vital. Whether you're reading a romance or a thriller or a crime novel or an historical fiction novel, the story has got to make the reader want to read the next page and to and the next chapter and to keep going because otherwise they won't enjoy it. So, story is all important, but. It's, it, you know, it's actually quite easy to remain loyal to history. It's it's something that I, I mean, you know, I, as your readers, or sorry, readers, as your listeners may know, I mean, I, you, you proofread it, um, you know, looking for mistakes and you know, kind enough to refer me to a colleague of yours whose period, uh, specialist period is Russia. So I, I get academics to read my books. I have done for a number of years. But um, what, so he's actually, he's half French, half British. So I, I wanted to do that because, I'm, I'm, you know, completely honest here, 70, 70 odd percent of my readers in the world are in Britain. So there's got to be an in there. You know, it's no it's it's not a coincidence that Bernard Cornwell has never written sharp in Russia, apart from the fact that he was probably somewhere else. But there was no British involvement, except when it came to espionage. There was there was a, quite a big presence and there was indeed a British diplomat in the French. Uh, you know, he was positioned with the uh, military command of the Russians and, and actually wrote stuff that survives. Um, and we we know of quite a bit of intelligence that went on, although we don't know many details because it was so secret that no one wrote it down, but there are textbooks on it. So 
I wanted um, a character who could be a British agent, but reluctantly. And so there were quite a few royalists who fled the, the revolution. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them, no doubt, married British people. So there will have been half French, half English people. And then um, I read a few Flashman books when I was a teenager. And I have to say, and I'm probably upset lots of people, I really didn't like them. I, I really disliked Flashman because he's such a scumbag, um, which obviously makes him a great character. But what I wanted in my head, having not looked at a Flashman book for 30 plus years, was to have an anti-hero because certainly in my earliest novels, the heroes were a bit just too clean cut and good guys and, you know, not as three dimensional. Uh, they didn't have too many uh, failings. And so essentially you've got this this man who's um, a gambling addict, a drunkard and has never fired a pistol who ends up in France. I won't say how, but um, running prisoners of war over the English Channel, which was a massive thing at the time um a wonderful expression that survived from the guinea boats that were um crossing the channel they were called that because napoleon was buying british gold because he didn't have any left and the smugglers who rowed over the channel they could row so fast that none of the sailing ships could catch them and a customs officer described trying to catch one as like setting cows to catch a hare so of course it's a quote like that just goes straight into the book so anyway he ends up in france and he's in down on his luck in paris and then in, a, in an homage to a magnificent novelist called Ronald Welch, who wrote, they're young adult, but they're they're really kind of highbrow young adult books. And he wrote, I don't know if you know, they're familiar with the um, with the books. They're about a family called Carey, which is the name, the surname of, of the hero. So that's a, a, a homage to him. And they're they take place from the first crusade all the way through history, right up until World War One, with one member of this family. For, for literally generations upon generations. And so he ends up being um, meeting two British secret agents who have the same names as the guy in the Welsh novel who blackmail him um, into, into becoming an imperial messenger. And back in those days, when I checked this with you, I think, you know, on the, rec on the recommendation, you could just be literally made, made, made in imperial staff. You didn't have to serve a career. So he ends up as this messenger because uh, he can ride a horse and he's he's fallen for this French actress who's gone off to Moscow, which was a, a big thing at the time. Indeed, thousands of them ended up trying to flee Moscow with the army and off he goes um, just not knowing what the what the hell is going on and not wanting to be shooting anybody. And of course, inevitably, he gets put in situations where violence is the only way out. And so he's also crossed crossed uh, this this arrogant cavalry officer. And I did, I did, you know, think of The Duelists, uh, which is the Ridley Scott's first film based on two French officers who fought more than 30 duels between 1794 and 1818 or something like that. And um, he fights a number of duels with this guy. And to anticipate the one star Amazon reviews that would said there's no way this guy would have had three or four duels with the same guy. I actually have a, a two paragraph note at the front of the book about dueling <laughs> so uh, i had great fun reading reading the, literally uh, two textbooks on dueling and and some of the stuff in that was just gold that didn't get into the book either but um yeah read a whole book on french theater and um 
whole book on Fran poor people in France and poor people in England at the time. You know, it's I don't just I'm not just interested in military history. I'm interested in everything about history so that I can try and get it as much of it right as I can. I think you are definitely sort of the historian's author um, in, in, oh, in well, a lot of respects. I'll take that and, one. Thank you. <laughs> um, because, I mean, genuinely, so, I mean, dueling is, is one of the things that I do a lot of research on because crime and punishment's my thing. Um, and I was reading this going, God, somebody's got it right for once. You know, oh, wow. it's, <laughs> it's, it's that kind of sense of rather than sort of what we as... 21st century folks might kind of envisage as a jewel you know all of the little kind of social expectations and the yeah. the, the 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 emotions that get tied up in it and the macho versus the fear and it's all just so potent within this mm. um one of the things i do want to touch on is that in addition to the 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 novel the novel's characters you know the the key um protagonists that you've built for this world you've also got historical figures in there napoleon's in there kulankar's in there how do you go about bringing those people to life on the page and is that kind of easier because you've got the history or does actually the history and the need to be honest to that history kind of something that's a bit of an impediment and you sometimes look at these things and go uh this would be better if i could just kind of make napoleon do x no, I didn't find that actually. So, although obviously Napoleon was the man, the 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 the, pup, pull, the man pulling the strings and the orchestrator of this campaign, he was a relatively minor character in the book. But he wrote himself because there are so many descriptions. I mean, I used Colincourt's whole book, and literally he said, and I had this conversation with the emperor. And I confirmed it with, I went and spoke to Duroc the next morning. He confirmed what I'd said. I'm going, there's a man who's actually got a copy editor of his own 200 years ago. Why, in my head, I was just thinking, well, I'm not going to contradict Colincourt. He's, he's written down what he said and checked it with a friend of his. So, and just the, just the, the you know, because Napoleon had a monstrous ego. That was, that was very apparent from the book, uh, from the books, I should say, the text I was reading. Anyone who would, sort of decide he was going to do this and then literally realize that it was not a good idea and being told by Colincourt the whole way along this is not a good idea the winter the winter the winter knowing that Alexander had said not while you know I will go to Kamchatka rather than 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 surrender and 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 all his posturing with saying if only if only Alexander would come to me we can embrace and be like brothers and it'll all be fine but he just needs to come to me Oh well, he's not there, so we there's no there are no Russians around, so we'll just keep advancing. So it was quite easy to have the hero think, "What the hell is this man thinking?" Well, all the troops are still happy, so it must be okay. You know, troops support a winning general, um, fans support a winning football team, and so probably most of the soldiers, certainly for a good part of it, they just thought, "Okay, so the Russians aren't here, but we've beaten everybody else, apart from Spain, obviously." But they, you know, Austerlitz and and Eilau and Wagram and all those. They, these were the men who had literally conquered Europe. So, um, I tried. It felt very realistic the way Napoleon was described. Although they didn't, they didn't um, damn him. Um, they obviously adored him, even when they, if they thought he was crazy. Like the scene where Colincourt tries to leave him because he's he won't listen. Napoleon won't listen to him. So he he. he says he's going off to Spain because um, he couldn't go to France because that would be cowardly. So I'm going to go to Spain and serve there. And 
he refused to um, go and meet Napoleon in the morning and he was avoiding all the messengers so that Na Napoleon couldn't get him to come to his presence. And eventually one of the messengers found him and ordered him to the emperor's presence. So he had to go. And it ended up with Napoleon literally doing his thing of grabbing him by the ear and and laughing at him. And Colincourt wrote in his diary, what could I do? So he just stayed. And he knew he he of all people, he really knew what it could be like. Uh, so it um, it kind of those aspects, I hope, wrote themselves because the descriptions that were in the text were so were so rich. It is one of the things that I remember because I didn't know for sure quite what to expect. So I'd read some of your Roman work, but I'm not a Roman specialist. So for that, you can just kind of it, certainly I can just kind of read it as uh, a well, anybody else who, you know, you know, picks up a historical novel and you just sort of enjoy it for what it is. But it did strike me when I was reading this that there was this kind of air, even in the way that you were writing things, that I could kind of hear elements of the historical accounts and the way in which they were influencing what you were writing. And I'm curious about how you find that sort of defining line between the historical fact and the fiction. Because, for example, Bernard Cornwell, has famously said to people, look, I get things wrong sometimes. Mm. You just got to deal with it. Um, and I remember sitting down and interviewing Simon Scarrow a while back, and he's kind of, he he does his best, but he always kind of comes back to that point of it's about fun. You know, that's why you're, you're writing fundamentally. So how do you go about defining that line between the two? And, and, and I suppose as a kind of a follow-up question, because you're always going to get people who go, oh, well, what about? Mm -hmm. um, how how do you then, if you know that you've just kind of massaged things a bit because it needs to in order to flow as a story, how do you then go about dealing with the inevitable people who want to sort of turn around and complain? So they're known as rivet counters by World War II specialists, uh, as in the number of rivets, you got the number of rivets in the wing of a Spitfire um, wrong. And yeah, I actually, I actually don't mind them anymore because you know, thanks to academics like yourself and your friend Alexander and also the amount of research I do, thankfully, I mean, there are going to be mistakes in this book probably, but thankfully the errors I make are, are pretty small and I, and I can live with them because for every one person who, who reads that, there are a hundred hopefully who read it and just enjoy it. But that's, I, I just like getting things right because to me, it's kind of pointless writing an historical fiction novel unless you try and portray it accurately. I don't even like, for example, and I have an analogy for the, Napoleon, the Napoleonic one, but I'll go to my Roman ones first. I don't even like the way we have to make uh, our Roman protagonists um, more, what's the word? Socially acceptable. Um, I have a friend called Harry Sidebottom, who's a, a doctor in Roman history and writes novels as well. And as he says, your average Roman male was homophobic, racist, and, um, you know, didn't think anything of animals tearing, wild animals tearing a criminal to, to pieces in front of him and his wife and kids. But he still loved his dog <laughs> and he liked his kids, you know, and there are tombstones to Roman dogs. Not very many of them, but there are a few. Uh, and in the Napoleonic novel, and so and so sorry what you, what you kind of have to do to make these these characters more likable is just not emphasize that 
but they can't be too right on or they, they wouldn't be accurate. Um, and what I had to do in that sort of vein with the Napoleonic novel was that as it became grimmer and grimmer during the retreat, there were bits that I just didn't put in. Uh, and there were scenes that, uh, I mean, I wouldn't even describe them on this podcast because they're just beyond, usually involving civilians and children and women. Um, and also I ended the book at the Berezina because after the Berezina, it just got even worse. Like when they got to um, Vilnius, oh my goodness me, Murat should have been shot for what he did at, at Vilnius and uh, or Vilna as it was known. I mean, in fairness, I'm not known on this podcast as being a friend of Murat. So, you know, you, no, you okay. can you can <laughs> indulge in the Murat rant as much as you like. Yeah, he was. But, you know, some of the things he did, I mean, he led a couple of charges on the 1812 thing, 60, 60 staff officers against 3000 Russians and the Russians ran away. Um and uh, he nearly got killed one day where he was he used to drink brandy with the Russians. He'd ride up to them and be chatting to them. And they thought he was great because of the way he dressed and because he, he was so nuts. And he rode up to this group of Cossacks one day. And one of them who didn't know who he was pulled out his pistol and took a shot at him. And the bullet blew his hat off. <laughs> so literally an inch or two lower and he would have been dead. And apparently he was a lot more cautious about approaching groups of Cossacks after that. <laughs> so... So yeah, it was um so the, the 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 in the macro uh you had all this incredible stuff and the and the horrific war and battles and suffering and so on, but at the micro you had the camaraderie and the gambling. You know, I was very it was very deliberate. You could have gambling and that can be funny. Uh, and the dueling added another because you know, a bit like Hawks, what's he called? Hawkswell or Hawkswell, so the um the enemy of the sharp Hakeswell, yeah. you've you know it's it's a, it's a it's a trope, but you've got to have an enemy close to home too. So so the guy he's dueling with is 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 like this honourable officer, but he's his his honour has been insulted. So they're fighting each other, but they never they hardly ever meet because the army's so big. And then he's a gambler, and he's got his mates. And um, you know, I read about this dog in 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 Zamoyski's book that got frostbite in its paws. And so its owner and it had walked all the way from Spain and Portugal to France to Russia. And this guy put put it in his backpack and we don't know whether it survived. I just went, that dog is going straight into the book. And what's his name? His name's Marshall Ney, because he's in that amazing exploit where they got the road blocked in November at, at Krasny and they marched sideways and went across the river. You know, all that bit. And there were. 12,000 of them and less than 1,500 made it, but Ney did. And so the dog gets called Marshall Ney and uh, and that dog survives. Like, I don't, sorry if I'm, that's a spoiler, but the dog makes it. <laughs> so, you know, I had all these essentially artificial things, but also true that happened to uplift it. And uh, I just felt, and even with that, my, my editor still got me, you don't know this because you read the earlier version, but she did actually ask me to leave in the retreat a bit. I ended up taking out about 3000 words, which is like a long chapter. It wasn't, it was just bits here and there, but it was the length of a long chapter of really grim bits um, that were just, and I funny, I posted the cut sections on Facebook and all my readers are going, oh my goodness, this is so amazing. It's so visceral. I'm going, yeah, but it's been cut. Oh, why has it been cut? And your editor, what does she know? And, and I said, yeah, imagine reading 150 pages of this. <laughs> and somebody went, okay, I think I get what you mean. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, it was probably the only significant reservation I had about the whole thing was that it's mm. just, it's grim and then it's grim. Uh, and inevitably, there's that sense of tragic inevitability, right? Um, and actually, that yeah. runs in a, in a few layers. You know, the, you set these characters up really nicely to kind of give these inklings about the falls that they're going to experience further down the line. But then also, you've got this kind of looming thing of, this is a book about the Moscow campaign. It ain't going to end well for people. Yeah. Um, one, just to double back ever so slightly, uh, we were talking about sort of acerbic readers. Um, hmm. And I've, I've heard some entertaining ones from authors over the years. Um, Simon Scarrow told me once that somebody called him, and I'm quoting directly here, folks, so excuse the profanity. Somebody called him a dickhead for describing Wellington as um, Wesley in the the early part of his novels um saying well everybody knows that he's wellesley and the point is that the person making that comment and they've written a letter to him um so you know that there's effort for you um had had missed the point didn't know their history well enough to know that originally wellesley mm. is wellesley and, and they mm. changed the family name do you have any kind of experiences that you are willing to share of people kind of I don't oh know, yeah, just yeah. just getting it completely <laughs> wrong and and being total yeah. fools. Yeah, I've got a couple. Uh, so I've walked Hadrian's Wall twice in full Roman gear, including the um, mail and the the hobnail. I wore hobnail boots, which were an accurate reconstruction of of a pair. Of, not the hobnail sandals. My friend wore them, but I often, if I'm promoting a Roman book, I will actually stand in a Waterstones in full Roman gear because people look at you and then they come up and they start talking to them. And I was standing in Waterstones, Carlisle a few years ago, and this guy walked up and he literally tapped me in the chest, which and I was wearing a male shirt and he tapped me in the chest and said, why are you wearing those? The Romans never wore chain mail. And I just my mouth just fell open. <laughs> And uh, explained to him very politely that, uh, yeah, they did. And it was around from the third century BC and they copied it from the Gauls. And, and he took it in fairness and he walked away. And then by email, I've, I've so here's one which, you know, people could agree. I once wrote, wrote about a needle in a haystack. And I, and I always look up the first described incident, uh, origin, sorry, the first incidents uh, in, in recorded writing of a saying. And it's only from the 1400s uh, for a needle in a haystack. But I didn't have to look up hay to know that hay is thousands of years old. And I did look up needle and there are needles from the Bronze Age. So, all right, the description only survives from the 1400s, but hay and needles have been around for a very long time. So I put that in a novel. Um, and about a year later, I did get an email telling me that I'd got it wrong and so on and so on. I just wrote back with the with the links to two websites for the origins of hay and the origins of needles. And, you know, if people, if they get that excited about things, then for me, you know, it's the whole thing is artificial because no matter how hard I try, unless I write all my French characters in French and all my, and my Roman characters in Latin, you know, so many words, for example, in the English language have French origins. So in a Roman novel, you shouldn't use any of them. Like I, and for example, I don't use the words reconnaissance ever in a Roman novel because it sounds too French, quote unquote. But so where do you draw the line? You know, it's it's all a construct. And so you're going to annoy people uh, so with different things that you do. And all I can do is try 
to portray the period I'm writing about as accurately as possible. Um, and if I if I've done that, and the reader thinks in their head that they were in Russia in 1812, and someone like yourself can go, you know, right, great, I got the feel of the period, no screaming errors there, then I've done my job. Uh, but there'll always be naysayers. Uh, but I, I'm a naysayer too. So if I, I, I'm proofreading a novel for a quote at the moment, and I, I won't give any details about the time period, but it is some hundreds of years in the past. And it's been it's been optioned for Netflix, okay? Uh, and it's a great idea. It's I'm, just, I'm reading it going, I wish I'd had this idea myself. But it's set hundreds of years ago, and these villagers go for a hike on page one. Like 500 years ago, people hiking. And that's just screaming at me. Nobody hiked back then. So I wrote to the editor going, you know, this is amazing, but like this. Anyway, but, you know, most people might not notice that. So does it really matter? Probably not. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in an age where everybody had to walk places, unless you were incredibly rich and could own a horse, the yeah. idea that you would voluntarily just go and go for a walk when if you need to go anywhere you're basically going through countryside anyhow yeah. um you know i think people often forget you know how much urbanization has happened in the last century to mm. the point where you go back 150 years and actually you're you're walking through countryside mm. um yeah, yeah. we look units of time i mean originally in my Rome, first few roman novels i'd refer to hours i think i'd probably refer to half hours and maybe quarter hours Oh my goodness, I don't do that anymore. Nobody thought like that. They thought it's dawn, maybe it's nearly midday and sunsets in a few hours. They had no concept of shorter, shorter periods than that. Um, and the Viking novel I'm writing at the another one, thanks to a wonderful text by a monk, because they were the people who wrote things down in the seven and eight hundreds. I I found out that um in in medieval Ireland, early medieval Ireland, which is where the novel is set. There were no measures of distance greater than a spear cast. So you have something for an inch and three inches, six inches, a foot, three foot, 10 feet, whatever, 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 which is like what you can see and the size of your field. And then spear cast is the longest recorded measurement of distance. And so I had I already had miles in there. Out they came and someone goes, well, it's five spear casts. And after that, I don't know how long it's going to take us, maybe half the day. And that was just a really small detail, but that was the kind of thing that really feeds me because I'm going, almost nobody will notice that, but it, it is accurate to put that in. <laughs> if anything, people are going to read it and go, what is, why is he stuck that in? I don't understand. Yeah, What's a spear yeah, cast? Probably. You know? But that's the fun of it. <laughs> yeah, um, I hadn't thought of that. They were like, why didn't he write bigger distances? Doesn't he know? <laughs> yeah. For God's sake, what's the matter with this cane guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the frustrations that historians often have is sort of trying to deal with the fact that people can't separate the fact from the fiction. And it's really interesting to talk to somebody like yourself who is so focused on, yes, I'm going to write something that people are going to find fun, but I'm also going to ground this utterly in in the historical reality and sort of fact-checked everything. Um, and, and the counter side is that, you know, somebody can like me can sit here and read a, a book whatever it might be and and we can nitpick to the end of time we we've done it with waterloo the 1970 film um but i was on a show recently and, and somebody made a, a really good point that sometimes you just need to suspend your disbelief that's mm. part of it so when 
this Napoleon film comes out, um, then, you know, am I going to sit there and, and pick the holes in it? Well, I might sort of suck my teeth occasionally, but basically I'm going there to to have fun. But that becomes difficult when when people take it as fact. And the, the, the anecdote that I always use for this is having been to the Rifles Museum in Winchester um, in my late teens. Um, so by this point, I was a bit precocious and I was starting to pick up some hefty history books. And I'm in the gallery that's dedicated to the, um, the Peninsula War and Waterloo section. And a guy walks in and back then they had this kind of shooting range style set up where they had a Baker rifle and you could have a go at kind of shooting French skirmishes and, and all the rest of it. And this guy <laughs> wanders in, walks up to the um, this shooting range style thing, picks up the rifle, goes, yeah, it's sharp, in it? Puts the rifle down, walks out of the gallery. And that was his sole engagement. And it, it's kind of that thing of how do you, how, how do people like me and people like you find a way of, of working together to address this sort of tendency of I read it in a book, therefore it's true, or I saw it on TV, therefore it's true. And not necessarily just being that little bit more careful about digging a bit deeper. Oh my goodness. Um, what a question. I, I, I don't know. Um, it's a very good question. I think uh, I know a lot of historical novelists, because uh, I'm part of an association, uh, the Historical Writers Association, and uh, you know I, know I know all my compatriots like Harry Harry Sidebottom and Simon Scarrow and so on, and pretty much everybody who I've ever sat in a pub with or had a meal with and walked Hadrian's Wall with, they're really really into the history and want to describe it as accurately as possible. So I'm not going to say gatekeepers because historians ought to be the gatekeepers in a way, but. I think in maybe in a fashion, you know, historical novelists are because the ones I know, uh, which is the, you know, the vast, vast majority, they're really meticulous about their research, you know, to, to, to the nerd. It's probably nerdish the way the way I am about it. But um, that's been that's how I find most people. I mean, is a lady called Elizabeth Chadwick who writes books set in the 12th century. And um, when I was breaking into that with my Lionheart series, I've read a few of her books and they're great. And I went on her website and she publishes her bibliography. Now she's been writing them for 20 plus years. So she'd written even more books than I had about the Roman period. And I think there were something like 300 novels, or sorry, 300 textbooks on her bibliography. And I literally cried. There were actually tears in my eyes when I initially, I just, because I had to three months to, re, re, to read enough research to write a book about Richard the Lionheart. And I was just going, how can I do this? I've spent 15 years reading. I have 300 textbooks plus about ancient Rome. How can I do that with Richard the Lionheart? And then obviously Napoleonic. And the simple answer is I can't. Um, but um, history is vitally important. And But how do we get it across? I, I don't know. I, I think one of the things that I, I don't know how much experience you have, you probably maybe have more experience with film crews or film programs of documentaries being made. But Certainly the limited amount I know, uh, and this is generally to do with Roman period dramas, are they'll get an historian on board um, and reenactors on board and they listen to what they say and then they just go, oh, we don't like that. We don't like that's what their uniform is. So we're going to dress them with these like this. And there, I know a reenactor who got fired off the set of a, a, a film which was being made in Britain because he wouldn't shut up about the crap uniforms and the incorrect uniforms that all the, he was going, what I'm wearing is correct. 
what they're wearing is not correct. And they, they eventually just sacked him. <laughs> and he said he was glad because at least his name didn't get listed on the credits. But I don't know. So it can be done. The, 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 C, the series Barbarians on Netflix, which is about the uh, Varian disaster in 89, for anyone who doesn't know, three Roman legions wiped out by German tribes in ambush. Um, and it's it's exciting. It's not very accurate. But what is accurate is is the Roman uniforms. And the reason for that is the military advisor is a, a Polish guy called Cesar. And I can't pronounce his surname because there are too many Zs and Ys and Ss in it. But he's a lovely guy. I know him. And he, he has a huge reenactment unit, nearly 100 legionaries. And they're all in their 20s and they're not fat. And their equipment is meticulously accurate. I mean, he has literally changed the thinking on centurions helmets which traditionally they always thought the transverse crest was horsehair and he's gone around taking thousands of photographs close-ups of uh statues and so on and just gone no no look you can see their feathers so his hat now has feathers and all all the reenactors around the world are copying him and anyway he he was employed by netflix as the military advisor for the romans and so um, I had a conversation with him. He wouldn't back down. He was just like, if you want me, you're going to do them properly. And so the Roman soldiers are actually accurate. Not, not the German tribesmen. But uh, so I, that doesn't really answer your question. I, do, I don't know. Because I, I, think, I think that generally filmmakers will listen to historians until they don't want to listen to them. See, so you say that. Um, I have known documentaries to be like yeah so we're gonna spin this line uh, and then you sort of have to have a quiet word with them and go no that's that what you're saying there is just historical nonsense and they're like yeah but we can we can make it work this way and you're sort of going no it, it really doesn't hold water at all and and these are documentary yeah. producers and actually it's moments like that that you start to realize how much of a gulf there is between what the public even get fed in the documentary, let alone mm. um, something on on whether it's a, a drama or a, a film. Um, I just want to stay with the whole kind of screen thing. What's your views on, uh, you know, is being too focused on the, the facts actually a disadvantage for you as an author? Obviously, what a lot of folks won't know from the world of showbiz is that hundreds if not thousands of ideas get mooted um and you know very very small proportion ever actually get made but do you find that actually because you are one of those people who worked really hard to get the facts right that ends up being a disadvantage because when hollywood comes knocking hollywood wants hollywood and nothing else well i've i i've never had the the, the sort of really um big discussions with Hollywood or TV. There've been, there've been some expressions of interest in a few of my books, but we were just briefly touching on this before the recording started. Um, so I'll just go sci-fi and say Ready Player One. Most people will know that film, uh, but based on the sci-fi novel, something like that is so original that when Hollywood wants to make it, they have to buy it from the, from the author because otherwise, you know, they will lose in a court case. But I personally think, uh, and I don't know whether this is true, but uh, I personally think that because my novels are all closely based on historical fact that, uh, you know, for example, that Barbarians series, I've written a trilogy on that. And there was some interest from one of the TV companies making a similar program. But 
the minute I I mentioned optioning my books, they just disappeared. Um, so they they I think there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, well, I'm not going to name any names, but big companies often look at ideas and go and use them if they feel like it. And I know I have a friend this happened to with one of his novels and he consulted a media lawyer and was basically told that the lawyers that the TV company would have would be a lot bigger and have bigger guns than he did. So did he really want to tangle with them? And he decided not to. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not an impediment. I mean, if it, if I had to choose between, I can play fast and loose with the facts and Hollywood will come knocking on my door or will I stick to the history? I'm going to stick to the history because I, yeah, it would sicken me to see one of my novels uh, on this, on the screen and it was completely ruined. I say that and I'm going to quote Louis de Bernier who wrote Captain Corelli's Mandolin and famously that film was a turkey. The, the book was brilliant and the film was a turkey. And I always remember reading an interview with him uh, where the the interviewer said, well, you know, the film Captain Gurley's Mandolin, it, it, it wasn't very good, really. Um, and uh, Louis de Bernier's answer was, mate, before that film, I lived in a one-bedroom flat in Streatham uh, uh, above a butcher's. Afterwards, I bought a four-bedroom house in Suffolk and I learned to play the violin for three years. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know, I... I yeah. I, I, I don't want to change history. I, I really like trying to get it accurate. And, and there are things that irritate me about my earlier novels that I got wrong. Even in my first trilogy, I put in a few Hollywoodisms that I knew were incorrect, like thumbs down for the death gesture in a gladiator arena. And I knew it was wrong. And I said it to my agent at the time. Oh, it doesn't matter, mate. That's what they think Hollywood loves. Put it in anyway. I would never do that now. Um, so, Yeah. <laughs> So are there any no-go areas when you're writing? Do you look at certain events particularly, I, I guess, and think, you know what, I, I just can't include that? Or are there any topics that you wouldn't go near because it's it's too much of a minefield or that you just feel don't kind of aren't going to tap into what people are looking for when it comes to your books? Um, yeah, there are two, two part answer to that. Um. I do always have it in mind, the market, you know, I'm, I'm a full-time novelist, which is actually quite rare. Just your listeners may not realize, but for every seven novelists whose books you see in a Waterstones or Tesco or WH Smith, or whatever, 
uh, only one out of those seven is a full-time novelist. The other six have another job. So I'm, I'm luckily one of those one in seven. So it's a bit like a band. Each book has to do well. You know, each album has to do well. You're only as good as your last book. Not, not quite. I do, I do, you know, three, four book contracts, but I've got to be mindful of, of the period I write about. So, but fortunately history is so rich that I, that's not a problem, but, um, Yes, there are things I steer away from. There are things that I put in my... I was thinking about it today, actually, the Spartacus book. Uh, there are things that I put in that I kind of wish I hadn't. And there are definitely things in this 1812 book I didn't put in. Um, my, there was a, a part of the Battle of Smolensk, which was this incredibly stupid attack on a walled city that Napoleon's cannon weren't powerful enough to pound through because the walls were about 15 feet thick. And he'd left all his big cannon behind. And uh, so they lobbed a load of um, uh, flare shells over the walls and everything was wooden. So the city just burnt to the ground really quickly and many hundreds of people burnt to death. And the scene when they went in the following morning was, was the, I mean, it was literally all verbatim descriptions by these French officers. So it was, and my editor, there was one bit, she actually asked me to take it out. And because she said, none of it's gratuitous, but that, feels like it is and I kind of went okay um, and then that was the only bit before the retreat but then during the retreat yeah there was there was actually quite a lot I didn't put in I just found I'm you know the difference between when I that Spartacus book came out uh, was I had tiny children then now my son is nearly 17 and my daughter's 14 and you know you see eyes differently when you're a parent and as your kids grow up and these scenes of you know there were lot there were children with with women and uh you know they were when, when you're starving to death and the russians are circling and you you're going to die if you don't look after yourself i mean the first people to die are the non-combatants so the scenes that were described by these french officers uh were just just horrific and i sort of alluded to it a bit but i didn't go into it in depth and even at the berezina there were there were bits of that that i didn't put in either because it was just yeah, I read them and I think they'll probably be in my mind until the day I die, actually, uh, because they're just they're just unspeakable. Um, so but, you know, obviously I didn't want to censor it too much because then it wouldn't be realistic enough. I couldn't. I we refused to sugarcoat it. So, um, you know, it was interesting when that you 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 came to me when you'd read it and said, I do. I am concerned about the, how grim it is. And that had been my main concern when I sent it to you. So. Um, hopefully I got it right that there's just enough light and just enough humor and, you know, black humor as well, because, you know, when, when you're in a desperate situation, you, you joke about everything. Uh, so an example is uh, on the way in, um, in the, through Poland and Lithuania, they, when, when it rained or the, there was sleet that you look for shelter. And so all the peasants had fled. So the French soldiers would rush into these peasant houses and they'd bar the door because they didn't want anyone coming in. And then they'd put as much wood in the stove as they could, and they didn't realize the thatch. The stove just went straight up through the thatch. So they'd set the thatch on fire, and then they couldn't get out. And initially, all their comrades would be helping them and trying to, trying to get them out and so on and so on. And then during the retreat, this was happening, but it was cold now. And so that what often happened was other men would just strip the thatch off the roof because then they could give it to the horses to eat and use it as a blanket. So you'd end up in a house with no roof, but if that didn't happen, you'd also set the roof on fire because you were trying to keep warm. 
and you'd have barred the door to stop everyone coming in. And all the guys used to stand around with their hands out to the fire going, listening to the screams of their comrades and the pop, pop, pop of their cartridges going off inside going, oh, isn't that terrible? And then a couple of weeks later, it was happening and they were laughing at their comrades dying inside while they held their hands out to warm themselves at the fire. And it was just this step-by-step degradation um, and this one officer's description, which again, I think got into the book where he wrote how his humanity was just stripped away day by day until you would literally walk over a comrade because if you stopped to help him up off the ground, you would also die. And it's it's re- it was it was yeah it was incredible actually just really stark but like I say I, t- I hope I weaved in enough enough nobility and and saving a dog I know you know it's 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 artificial but that dog is real someone did put a dog in his backpack and um and so on so yeah but I I do think it's that honesty that is is what really impressed me you know there. The, it, you think Napoleon, the Russia campaign, and there's always going to be that temptation to play to the crowd of Napoleonic glory. Obviously, the Moscow campaign is one of those examples where there's as little glory as Napoleon's ever able to take away from anything. You know, it, it's as bad as as it really gets. And yet, you you didn't kind of go down that route of let's let's make this a a novel about you know, Napoleon and, and it's all great and then things sort of unfortunately go wrong, but we're not going to focus on too much of the suffering. We're just going to make sure that people are aware. You know, you you focus on, this is a kind of a bottom-up novel in a lot of respects. It's about the human mm. elements in there. Um, I, I guess as we start to sort of look at, at wrapping this one up, there are a couple of areas that I want to talk about. And one is about advice that you'd give to people who are looking to write historical fiction because everybody thinks that they can write a novel um <laughs> and i'm one of those people who really doesn't think that they can write a novel actually um okay. if anybody came knocking i'd tell you tell them to go away <laughs> because uh, my my abilities in, in that vein are, are pathetic but what advice would you give to people um who are kind of thinking about you know perhaps exploring that avenue the first advice I always give is because I get, you know, conversation in a, in a bar at a someone invites you around for dinner and you meet someone you don't know. Oh, you write. Oh, you. Oh, I've got an idea for a novel. And, and I always say, OK, so how much have you written? And generally the answer is, oh, I haven't started yet. I'm too busy. And I literally mime holding a smartphone in my hand and, and scrolling my thumb. And I say to people, everybody's got time to do this for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour a day, you know, could easily be more than an hour a day. So if you want, if you want to write a novel, you have to take it seriously. You can't drive a car if you've never had lessons. So start writing and write every day. Oh, I don't have time every day. And so I challenge one reader. I've done this a few times. I challenged one reader. I said, you know, blokes often take quite a long time sitting on the loo. So I said, instead of being on your smartphone, I said, bring your laptop in and get it. If you have an old laptop and I challenge you to write on the toilet because he had small kids, so he had no time. So he came back to me about a year later and he'd written about 25,000 words sitting on the loo. (laughs) So, you know, everyone can find 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day. So start doing that. Do that for one month, three months. And suddenly you've actually got something. 
um, so it's actually really important to start and make it a habit, like stopping smoking or stopping drinking alcohol or taking up an exercise, running or swimming or whatever. And uh, and then read, 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 read everything, not just your own genre, but everything and try and learn and look online for resources on how to write um, and writing courses. Great. But, you know, you need to practice writing for, I would say, at least one to two years before you, you think of publishing, because if you do it sooner than that, I'm sorry, but unless you're Sebastian Fox or someone like that, it's not going to be good enough. And another critical one is whenever your novel is finished is, um, you know, a lot of people get their family and friends to read it, which is fine, but your family and friends love you. And so they're not good critics. You need to pay a professional editor to read it and edit it and pay them good money. Uh, and they will, they will give you, uh, you know, the most incredible tips. I did that with my first novel before it went out to publishers. And it cost me in 2007, it cost 1200 quid. It was about 20 or 30 hours at about 40 pounds an hour. No, it's more than that. 30 hours at 40 pounds an hour, which back then was an awful lot, probably a lot more now. But that was a lot of money, you know, out of my taxed income. But it was pure gold, the notes she gave me that I, you know, I would still use stuff um, that that uh, that she that she was able to um, to show me and often it's literally like just pulling aside a net curtain so you've got a scene in sort of focus maybe some of it's in really good focus you're really good at describing people's emotions or a scene but other parts are out of focus and someone pulls aside the net curtain which is what the editor does and you go oh oh that's what it looks like and you know there's a lot of writing that is just learning um, and it take it does take time but being persistent and not giving up is also something I say to people, you know, just because, uh, you know, it, um, you've been told it's no good doesn't mean it. it's true. Famously, J.K. Rowling sent her novel to an agent who didn't do children's fiction and he threw it in the bin and his secretary pulled it out of the bin because she liked the, co the cover image, which you're not supposed to put on, but she had. And the secretary read it and went, this is really good. Read this. And he rewarded his secretary with a million pound bonus about two years later. Now that agent has had probably like a hundred million or whatever, but that that's a true story. Like that is not made up. Uh, and so, you know, JK Rowling might, might never have found a publisher if it hadn't been for that, that secretary. So. What's next for you as well? And when I say that, you know, kind of don't spoil the ending of, of the book that's coming out today, you know, today is publication day when this airs um so you know don't kind of tell us whether there's a direct sequel in the pipeline uh, involving the same characters um but are you gonna come back to the napoleon akira you talked about um you're you're doing some stuff on, on the viking period i think you said yeah um what what's the plan going forwards what can we look forward to yeah there's so some quite exciting stuff um I wrote the second Punic War and never finished it, uh, which I get a lot of jip about from from readers a lot, actually. And it was genuinely a financial decision because the second and third books didn't sell as well as the first. And my editor suggested heavily that I didn't continue it. And, you know, I was literally, do I go back to being a vet and sink my own career or do I just listen to them? And so I did. Uh, but I'm writing this this novel set in Norse 
Ireland, um, which has been fascinating because as your, your listeners, I keep saying readers, sorry, as your listeners may realize I'm Irish. And so actually I, I nearly wrote a Viking novel rather than Roman, but Bernard Cornwell's first Uhtred novel came out when I was thinking of doing Vikings. And I thought that I couldn't then do Vikings, which was actually incorrect, but I went Romans. And finally, I'm, I'm going to do Vikings or more correctly known as Norse. And one of the, the fascinating things about that very quickly is how different the situation was in Ireland compared to Britain. So obviously people know about Jorvik and they know about Alfred of Wessex and, and all that, these kingdoms in the West with the English and the Welsh against the Vikings in the East and the North, totally different in Ireland. There were these few Viking settlements and there were waves of Vikings and they, they rapidly married the Irish. And so by the 950s, you had Norse, Hiberno-Norse and guys coming in from Orkney and guys coming in from the Isle of Man who were Vikings. And you had wars between all these provincial kings in Ireland with Vikings slash Norse on both sides for, for well over 150 years. It, was, it really was very different. And so I'm having great fun with that, trying to portray the differences between the two cultures. So I'm, I'm going to do two of those. Uh, the second of which will culminate with the Battle of Clontarf in 1014, which putatively is when the Vikings were driven out of Ireland, but is actually not true because the bloke in charge of Dublin stayed there for another 20 years. But anyway, it's a good headline. And then I'm going to finish my Hannibal series that I just men uh, mentioned. I'm going to do two more on those leading up to the Battle of Zama in 198, 202 BC, sorry. And after that, I may well do another Napoleonic novel, actually. Because what happened in 1813 and 1814 leading to 1815, I mean, I'm probably going to inflame some of your readers now, but I'm going to put it out there. If Napoleon had had 140,000 horses that he had lost in Russia and 350 to 450,000 crack soldiers that died, if he'd had them in 1813 and 14, the history of Europe, in my opinion, would be very different indeed. <laughs> So, I mean, we've just come off the back of a, a what if episode and the whole what if Napoleon doesn't do the whole 1812 yeah. campaign is a, yeah. a fascinating thing in itself. Even if we did acknowledge that for Napoleon to not embark on the 1812 campaign would require Napoleon to not be Napoleon. Napoleon. Yes, <laughs> which is kind of the problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one final one for me. I mean, I've talked uh, a lot about how much I enjoyed this. Um, the the proof of these things is always in in the reading. I wonder if you could just give us an extract from the book um, in order to just kind of give the listeners a sense of quite why this is one of those books that people you do need to go and buy because it's not your sort of as we've emphasised it's not sort of glory and oh it's all jolly hockey sticks and um, it's all going to work out neatly in the end. Uh, this is a book that gives you the sort of gritty, distressing, emotional reality, whilst also kind of rattling along a, a hell of a pace and and being quite funny along the way. I was reading this going <laughs> up and down on a train um, to the National <laughs> Archives, and people gave me some real looks, like, what is this weirdo doing? Um, as I'm, I'm sitting in a corridor because the train's overcrowded, uh, chuckling to myself, reading this script. As in, as in, do you want me to read an extract? That'd be amazing oh, wow. if you're willing. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just, um, I actually unusually happen to have a copy of the manuscript in front of me. I wouldn't normally, because the book's, you know, it's done now. 
So I'm just um I'm just wondering because you like the dueling scenes. Is that is that but that's not showing the grimness maybe enough. <laughs> oh, that's all right. I think people can can buy the book in order to uh enjoy the grimness. But yes, yeah, so just something that you you particularly like or uh okay. that, that makes you chuckle. Yeah, okay. I will I will uh I'll read you a section from the from the the, the first dueling scene uh because I I took it was funny. I know Paris sort of not well, but you know, I I know I've been there quite a few times, and and I thought to myself, oh, the Bois de Boulogne, it's this massive woods, really close to the center of Paris. I thought that that's going to be a great place for a duel. Put it into Google. Bing! It's where they used to have the duels. <laughs> it's where people used to go. So, okay. Uh, so basically, what's happened is that the hero's name is Matthew Carey. Uh, Carey is also a common a common enough surname in Somerset where I live, but it is a French name too. I don't think they're linked, but and it's an, hom uh, an homage to the Ronald Welsh author I mentioned. So um, he has insulted this cavalry officer at the theatre and been treated really badly. And his temper just frays. He's not normally a fighter, but he he slaps the guy across the cheek, which of course is the the the, the challenge to a duel and won't back down and then he is going to back down but doesn't so he's 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 got a duel early in the morning in the bois de boulogne and he didn't even have a pistol so his his friend has literally had to get a pistol for him so i'll start i'll start sort of in the bois de boulogne we had arranged to meet at a quarter past seven but guillaume was already waiting at the entrance to the gardens my heart lifted a little i was able to return his smile with a weak one of my own as we began walking westward, I noted the cloth-wrapped bundle in his hands. The pistol? I asked. Yes. I said nothing else. I did not want to see it until I had to. We took the most direct route to the Bois de Boulogne along the Champs-Élysées. In normal circumstances, I would have stared at the unfinished, magnificent Arc de Triomphe, Napoleon's monument to celebrate his victory at Austerlitz. Today, I walked by without even looking at it. I had visited the Bois de Boulogne several times with the Duponts, a former royal park. It was popular with Parisians for Sunday walks. I wished that were my purpose now. Trees spread out to our left and right. There were early blossoms on the cherry trees, and in the distance, between the beeches and oaks, I could see the former hunting lodge of Pavillon d'Armonainville. Birds were singing, welcoming the new day. More peaceful a scene I could not have pictured. This way, said Guillaume, taking a path that went left among the trees. Have you been to a duel before? I asked nervously. Mon Dieu, no, but everyone knows where they're fought. It made sense. I had never been to the spot in Hyde Park where men dueled and bled and died, but I knew its location. Guillaume sensed my mood and made no attempt to draw me into conversation. At length, we came to an enormous grassy clearing. Perhaps a 150 paces away, two figures were visible. What time is it? I asked. Guillaume consulted his pocket watch. Ten minutes to eight. There was no point in delay, I thought, my nerves tightening. Show me the pistol. He knelt and unwrapped the cloth, revealing a dueling pistol with a plain wooden butt and brass-plated barrel, a small leather bag and a powder flask. There were also several tiny squares of cloth, wadding to go round the ball. It is not expensive, he said, but it's a good quality weapon. I will load it. That is your job, I know, but I must do it. I have to. I had done it once before. 
Aiming the barrel end at the sky, I pulled the tip off the end of the powder flask. How many grains? About 30. I made a rough count as they fell, then set down the flask. Guillaume had already taken a ball from the leather bag. I wrapped it in a cloth square, then shoved the lot into the end of the barrel. Pulling the ramrod out, I pushed ball and wadding down as far as they would go. I glanced at Guillaume, flask at the ready. And in the pan? A shrug. Half cover it, he said. Pan filled, I gently brought the steel back down to protect it. Happy? As I can be. Guillaume's kindly face was troubled. Perhaps it is not too late. You could try apologising to Ferrault. I could, I admitted. The truth was, I regretted my behaviour the previous day. If I had just taken the humiliation, I would still be in my bed, rather than facing death in the Bois de Boulogne. Let us see what Moody is in. If it seems possible, you can ask. To look less confrontational, I gave the pistol back to Guillaume, who held it balanced in the crook of his left elbow. We walked at a measured pace towards Ferrault and his second, leaving a trail of shoe-shaped impressions in the dewy grass. My mouth was dry, fear mounting, but I kept my face impassive. Whatever Ferrault might think of my apology, he must not see that I was afraid. Ferrault's second came forward. He was a thin-faced type with bad teeth. Guillaume went to meet him, as was the custom. I am Bachasson, he said politely enough. That is Dupont, and you are... Bardin. What distance is agreeable? Twenty paces? This was standard. I, my friend, was wondering if Captain Ferrault would accept an apology. A surprised sniff. A glance at Ferrault, who was staring off in the opposite direction, as if he had no interest in the proceedings. I can ask. He did not sound hopeful. Off he went, and Guillaume shot me a look. He did not think Bachasson would be successful either. Twenty-five to one, I thought, at the least. A few moments later, Bachasson returned. Captain Ferrault refuses. Any such attempt should have been made before this morning's meetings, as Monsieur Dupont ought to know. He is aware. I see. Another sniff, one that intimated Bachasson thought I was stupid, or a coward, or both. As I say, Captain Ferrault will not consider an apology. Shots must be fired for honour to be restored. My stomach did a neat and unpleasant roll. Very well, said Guillaume. Twenty paces it is. First blood will be sufficient for my principle. This meant the duel could end if a man was wounded rather than have to continue until one participant was dead. That is also acceptable. How many shots each? asked Guillaume. Two was the norm. I felt sick to think of having to stand not just once but twice while my enemy took aim and fired at me. Captain Ferrault says he only needs one, Bachasson declared. Guillaume agreed, and I tried to wipe my sweaty palms on my trousers without being obvious. I had no idea if I would even be able to shoot at Ferrault, vile human being though he was. He, on the other hand, seemed fully prepared to kill me. Can the participants advance before they shoot? asked Bachasson. We had talked of this. No, said Guillaume. He and Bachasson walked to Ferrault, who had taken off his coat and armed himself from a wooden box lying close by on the grass. He took up a position side on to me, pistol held down by his right side. Guillaume and Bachasson paced in my direction, both counting out loud. Reaching twenty a short distance from me, they both beckoned. I walked, the little devil in my head, gleefully announcing that these were perhaps the last state steps I would ever take. Shut up, I, sh I snarled at it. To my relief, the voice vanished. 
Guillaume proffered the pistol and said, turn sideways. I obeyed. When I let my handkerchief fall, said Bachasson, you may both shoot. Understand? My yes came out as a croak, so dry was my throat. My heart was racing as if I had drunk half a dozen cups of strong coffee. Breathe, I told myself. Breathe. Guillaume touched my shoulder and went with Bachasson to the halfway point between me and Farot. They stood well back, but near enough that we would both be able to see the handkerchief. You may raise your pistols and cock. Carefully, I drew back the curved metal that held the flint. I lifted my arm and pointed the pistol at Ferrault, staring down its barrel at his smug, moustached face. Bachasson's handkerchief was a little white square on the left side of my vision. Ferrault filled its centre. His weapon appeared to be aimed at my heart. How bad would the pain be, I wondered. Would I feel the lead ball rip into my flesh? tearing blood vessels, shattering bone, or would I just fall to the turf, severely wounded? No surgeon was present. I did not know one, and Farrault had not offered to bring one. Probably, I thought, because he expected to emerge unscathed. Ready? called Bachasson. Yes, we chorused. And I'll stop there, because <laughs> that leaves everybody on a cliffhanger. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you don't want to tell people what comes next, do you? No. Um, but yeah, it's it's just great to hear sort of the little details woven in there. Um, folks, Napoleon's Spy, it's, it's available everywhere. Um, you're going to want to order it. It's out today, the day that this goes out, so 25th of May. Um, enjoy it because it's one of those rare things. It's a history book that both myself and Alex Mikabaridze read and my listeners know Alex Mukabridze's pedigree, and he was, uh, so I hear, he liked it as well. So he, um, he, he the thing that I'm going to take is one criticism. Sorry to interrupt. Is one criticism which I take as I love, is he said no one man could have seen as many things as as my hero did because obviously I took all the best bits that I read in these first hand accounts, and I said I know, but what am I going to do? So because he knew he knew where they all came from. He literally said he could see he knew which which account I was I was using in each scene because it's it's his, it's his period. But yeah, it was I, I took that as praise. <laughs> Too right. People go and get this. Napoleon's spy available everywhere. Ben, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Zach. Um, really enjoyable. Great fun. And some great questions. Thank you. And I hope your listeners enjoy it. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. If you're a fan of the period, did you know that you can immerse yourself in a Napoleonic Wars pod universe full of exclusive bonus episodes, a Discord server to chat with the wider Napoleonic enthusiast community? They're a fun bunch, trust me. Plus there are socials, the chance to request episodes, and even a course on the period. Head over to patreon.com, the link's in the description, to find out more. Much love to all my Patreon supporters. Bear in mind that if you want to enjoy the perks of a specific tier, like joining the course, but don't fancy others within a particular tier, you can now edit your pledge to secure individual perks rather than a whole package. Drop me a message via Patreon or Twitter for more details. Shoutouts to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Alexandra Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, 
Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keyes Bishop, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, Ted Andrews, David Milinski, Stephen Gillen, Richard Anderson, Andrew McCall, Arthur Forgey, and the inimitably named Reto the Sci-Fi Fan. The Admirals, that's David Priest, Rob Coughlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, Michael Guest, John Haynes, Kate Walcom, and Steve Carter. The Marshals, that's Ger Brown, Rory Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Stephen Ashworth, and Sean Sullivan. The Emperors, Graham Swidenbank, and J.C. Kaiser. And the Legion de Scholars, Dan Hazelwood, David Maxwell, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.